You take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Genesis chapter 24. Genesis 24. We are concluding our look at the life of Abraham today, and after this, we'll be taking a break from Genesis, and will God willing start a brand new sermon series next week going through the book of James. Uh, when, um, when Dana and I are getting to know couples, one of the things that we tend to ask them is, how did they meet? That's always very interesting to us. Um, I tend not to like it as much when people ask how Dana and I met, how, how we met, uh, because it makes me look bad. Um, often people have stories of love at first sight or, or just some amazingly romantic situation. When Dana first laid eyes on me, it wasn't love at first sight. It was more like annoyance at first sight. Uh, we met at Prairie Bible College, um, a little non-denominational school in a little town that none of you have ever heard of, uh, Three Hills, Alberta, Canada. And, uh, and Dana's first experience around me was uh, one evening when a bunch of students were having a praise and worship time around a bonfire, and folks were singing and being really spiritual and singing praises to God. And all the while, myself and a couple of buddies were cutting up the whole time. We were being very obnoxious, we were cracking jokes, and generally being a distraction to Dana while she was all serious trying to worship and enjoy God. That's right. That's your pastor, disrupting a worship service. And somehow, through the grace of God, Dana was eventually able to see past my immature ways, found a couple of decent qualities in there, a diamond in the rough, and we eventually ended up really hitting it off and connecting. And I thank God to this day that we did, that God shielded her eyes from all the other things that were wrong with me. What amazes me about that whole experience is not just that I got another chance with Dana, uh, but I was also, I'm also amazed by the providence of God working in our situation. And by providence, I mean God working not in obviously big miraculous ways, sensationalistic ways, but working behind the scenes uh, very subtly. Uh, working in, in everyday, ordinary events of life, orchestrating and weaving together a million little circumstances to one day bring us together. I was from Alaska. She was from Ohio. We met in the middle in Alberta. Uh, she just happened to arrive on campus in 1996. That just happened to be my senior year. If, if she would have come just one year later, we would have totally missed each other. We would have never known that the other person existed and then, of course, there would be no Ethan, there would be no Ella, uh, Elijah wouldn't be sitting here right now, probably wouldn't know any of you. But the reason the way things are now the way that they are is because God's hand has been in the, the details of every part of my life and every part of her life so that we would finally be brought together in the fall of 1996 in a very obscure little town at an obscure, tiny little Bible college and the rest is history. <clears throat> but perhaps no story of a couple coming together is as fascinating as what we're going to look at here in Genesis chapter 24, uh, how God brings together Isaac, who will be the next great patriarch of the people of God, and Rebekah, 
who will take Sarah's place as the great matriarch of Israel. And God's purpose in this story in Genesis chapter 24 is, uh, is, is for more than just making us smile or giving us warm romantic fuzzies. God has an important word for us today in this chapter to instruct and strengthen and encourage the people of God. And, and so I've been, been praying for you in the days leading up to the sermon that, that God would indeed bless the, the reading and the teaching of His Word. Let's read this together. Why don't you stand with me now out of reverence and respect for the reading of the Word of God. This is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. <clears throat> I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'll, I'm going to read some, some highlights, and, uh, but we'll, 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 um, in the sermon we will cover uh, every aspect of this chapter. Uh, chapter 24, starting at verse 1. Word of the Lord says, Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps a woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must then I take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. And show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had spent, finished speaking, behold, Rebekah who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel, two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels, and he said, "'Please tell me whose daughter you are.' Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? 
She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of our master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring, and as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring, and he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels, gave straw and father to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. And then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, speak on. And over the next few verses, the servant recounts everything that had happened, and we're going to skip all of the repetition, and we're going to go down now to verse 49. After the servant explains what happened, he says this, Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me, then I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you good or bad. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord and The servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, "'Send me away to my master.' Her brother and her mother said, "'Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go.' But he said to them, "'Do not delay me.' Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let's call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, through your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Ah, that's a lot of reading. <clears throat> <clears throat> I 
One of the, uh, the most common questions that I get as a pastor has to do with areas of discerning the will of God. Uh, how can I know God's will in a given situation? And sometimes folks, uh, in their desperation, end up trying to make decisions in some very strange ways. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, seeking some sort of miracle or, or, or hyper-mystical experience to tell them what to do. Uh, some of us out of desperation, I may have even done this myself once or twice. Uh, have you done this? We, we just open up the Bible to a random verse, and we're like, ah, uh, boom. And we stick our finger right there. Maybe you haven't done it, but you probably have heard of people uh, who have done that, that sort of thing. And, and they're, they're thinking, well, maybe instantaneously, I'm just going to find the answer uh, to my question. Now, I'm not saying that God can't work with that, but I am saying that that could go very wrong depending on where your finger lands. It reminds me of the story of the guy who closed his eyes and he pointed to a random Bible verse, and it ended up uh, being Matthew 27, 5, where it says, and Judas went and hung himself. And not liking that, he tried again. And it ended up on, on Luke chapter 10, verse 37, where it says, and you go and do likewise. And then he gave it one more shot, and it lands on John 13, 27, that says, and what you're going to do, do quickly. <laughs> so I just wouldn't recommend that approach as the best way to get guidance from God. Uh, other people ask God to do some sort of nature-bending miracle or give them a vision or even speak audibly to them. Now, I think Genesis 24 is very instructive for us. We have here Abraham's final act of faith on record before he dies. One final act of faith, one final lesson for us. And what's remarkable about this chapter is that unlike some other things we've read in prior chapters, there's no obviously supernatural, sensationalistic things happening. There's no visions, there's no dreams, there's no, there's no uh, extraordinary manifestations from God, no, no voices from heaven, nothing like that at all. Uh, what we read in Genesis 24 is, comparatively speaking, very ordinary compared to some other stuff that we've seen. And that's what makes this chapter, I think, so helpful for us, because that's exactly where you and I live. No one here has had God show up in physical form for dinner. Abraham had that in, in, in chapter 18. Uh, no one here is experiencing direct revelations from God or having an audible conversation with God. And they're, they're hearing God's voice audibly kind of talking back to them and saying, well, well this is what I think you should do. Uh, historically, those types of experiences have been very rare for the people of God, and we are never told to, to seek out or to expect those kinds of sensationalistic experiences in our daily walk with God. And yet, on the other hand, we are told to expect and be confident in the fact that God will act and work and move very powerfully in our lives all the time for the good of His people and for His glory, which should give us great hope. And that's one of the messages of this chapter. And what I'd like to do is, uh, is break down this chapter uh, just uh, into a handful of sections, about four sections, and we'll, we'll try to weave in a little bit of application along the way as well. And the first uh, section of our story, we see a great commission, a great commission. In the opening verses, Abraham summons his chief servant for a very important mission, which you can really boil down to three things. One, that Isaac must have a wife, that's verse 3. Uh, number two, that he must not marry a Canaanite woman, but must be from Abraham's own homeland, that's verses 3 and 4. 
And finally, that this bride, uh, this bride must be brought back to Canaan. Isaac can't go up to Mesopotamia and be there. That's verses 5 and 6. And Abraham is very adamant about these, these things. These are non-negotiables. He's absolutely confident that this is the will of God. But how does he know that? Because nowhere do we read of God saying, Isaac can't marry a Canaanite. Uh, nowhere do, do we see God saying, well, Isaac can't go to Mesopotamia and live there with his bride. So how does Abraham know the will of God? How does he come to these conclusions? Surely the only way that Abraham could know these things is through the contemplation and meditation on God's Word. I like how John Piper explains it when he says that Abraham determines what the will of God is by forecasting where the trajectories of God's past revelation are leading. I think that's exactly right. So, for example, take this first charge that Abraham, uh, that Isaac must have a wife. How does Abraham know that? Because he knows that because even though God never explicitly said, Isaac shall marry, do not the promises of God point in exactly that direction? In Genesis chapter 12, God promises to make Abraham into a great nation. In Genesis 15, He promises to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven. Now, how can Abraham have numerous descendants when he's got one unmarried son? Abraham and Isaac together hardly make a great nation. So it is right for Abraham in light of previous revelation from God, previous word from God, to come to the conclusion that Isaac must marry, even though God never explicitly said it. Abraham could trace the trajectory of that past promise into the future and know what God's will was. And notice at the end of verse 2 how, how the servant takes this oath, Abraham says, put your hand under my thigh. And you're thinking, that is weird. I'm glad we don't do oaths today that way. Uh, what, what's that all about? Well, that, put your hand under my thigh. That's probably a euphemism. He's placing his hand near Abraham's reproductive organ, near the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision, which pointed to God's promise to bless the world through offspring. And so Abraham clearly has the Word of God on his mind in this moment. Now, what about the second charge, that Isaac must not take a wife from the Canaanites, but rather his bride must be from Abraham's homeland back in Mesopotamia? Again, no explicit command from God here about that, but Abraham is adamant that this is the right thing to do, this is the will of God. How does he know this? Well, again, I think Abraham could consider God's previous word to him and trace the trajectory of his word to bring him to a wise decision for Isaac's future. Now, what did God's word say previously about the Canaanites? Nothing good. Uh, they're pretty much doomed for destruction, aren't they? And Genesis 15, 16, God says that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's not yet full. The implication is it will be one day. Uh, the Canaanites were an extremely pagan and wicked people involved in all kinds of debauchery and rebellion against God. And there's going to come a time when the level of their evil will reach a point where God's patience is going to run out and He's going to unleash His terrifying judgment upon them all. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to determine that it's really not a good idea for his son to intermarry with the Canaanites. All it takes is an understanding of God's Word. And when you trace out the past trajectory of God's Word, it helps you to determine God's will for your future. 
We also know from Genesis chapter 9 that not only are the Canaanites under God's curse, but the line of Noah's son Shem would be the line of blessing. Abraham is in that line. And so Abraham is essentially charging his servant with keeping Isaac from marrying into the cursed people and marrying marrying instead into God's special people. Now, what about this third aspect of Abraham's commission, that Isaac was not to leave the land of Canaan, but that the bride should come to him? How how does Abraham confidently come to the decision that this is the will of God? Well, again, all Abraham would have to do is consider past words from God. What did God promise about the land of Canaan? We've been talking about this in almost every, every sermon in our series through Abraham here. That, that land would belong to Abraham's descendants. One, one day in judgment, God would remove the Canaanites out of the land and give the promised land to Abraham's offspring. And so to leave the promised land and settle else, elsewhere would have been an act of unbelief. Isaac's future was not back in Mesopotamia. It was to be in Canaan. And so we learn a lesson from Abraham here in these decisions that he is making. They're not arbitrary. Uh, we, we learn that the most important aspect of discerning the will of God is to have a firm grasp on the Word of God and let our decisions be informed by that Word. We're going to trace the trajectory of God's past Word to us and use that to help us determine future action. So many times Christians make awful choices and fall into confusion simply because they're living their lives untethered to the Word of God. And and folks, we actually have an advantage over Abraham. We we have more word. We have more revelation than Abraham did. How big was Abraham's Bible? (laughs) And you might say, well, well, I've got a decision facing me that the Bible doesn't speak to directly. And that may be the case. Uh, If the Bible spoke to every single specific situation that could be encountered, how big would your Bible be? Uh, You think your Bible is is big now? It would be a thousand times bigger. Uh, But what you will find all over God's Word are principles and wisdom that will have something to say about everything a person of God has to deal with. And so, for example, you have 2 Timothy chapter 3, which tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Everything that God would have you to do in this life will be addressed somehow, in some way, in God's Word. And so our problem is not that the Bible is not sufficient for us. The problem is, is that we don't know it well enough, or we don't lean on it consistently enough, or, or we don't trust what it says well enough. We have seen in our study of Abraham that every time he crashed, every time he crashed and burned and made completely stupid choices, it was when he lost his grip on the promises of God's Word. But now Abraham has grown considerably, hasn't he, from his earlier days as a, as a believer. Uh, now we see him making wise decisions that are completely informed by the Word of God, by the promises of God. He says in verse 7, "'The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there.'" He will send his angel before you simply means God's going to guide you in this. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about the details. God's got this. He's got, he's got confidence that as he moves in conformity with the Word of God, 
that God's going to work out the nitty-gritty details, the the nuts and bolts. Uh, He's going to send his angel before you. He's going to guide you. But at the same time, Abraham is not presumptuous. Look at verse 8. He says, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. In other words, even if things don't turn out the way that I think that they will, we're not going to compromise. Isaac isn't going back there. The trajectory of God's Word is pointing to Canaan, and that's where we're going to be. And so Abraham sends his servant off on this great commission, and so the servant goes on a great journey, a great journey. I'm going to need to flip that. Thank you. Verse 10, it says, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Now, we're not given a lot of details about this journey, but it's a long trip, uh, roughly some 500 miles. And i uh, got a little map here for you in case you're, you're interested in the, in the journey. Uh, that, that's a long way. They're start, he's starting down in the south there, in the Negev, going all the way north to Haran. Um, that's going to take several weeks. And I think as we consider the servant's journey and what he will do in the next few verses, I do think that it's important that, to, to realize that another part of making wise decisions is that there does come a time for action. Uh, Abraham is trusting that God will provide. There's no doubt about that. But that doesn't mean that he's passive doesn't mean that Abraham is going to sit around and, and wait for God to make a bride materialize for Isaac out of thin air or teleport her in from Mesopotamia. Having faith in God's provision doesn't automatically mean we should be passive. In fact, faith is demonstrated often not in our passivity, but in our activity. For example, we trust that God will provide for our material needs but we don't sit around and wait for God to make money materialize in our bank accounts. We actually go out and we act. We work. We actively move forward in accordance to God's will, trusting that He's going to provide. Because God doesn't just ordain the ends, He ordains the means. And, And in the normal course of life, God will work through our actions when we are acting in faith and in accordance to His Word. So the servant goes to the city of Nahor, and when he gets there, again, he takes action. He, he just doesn't go and, and sit on a hill outside the city and say, okay, Lord, I, I trust you. I have faith that you're going to provide, so just do your thing. No, trusting God doesn't mean that you check your common sense at the door. He, he instead makes some rational decisions. He comes to this city, and when he gets there, the first thing he does is he goes to the local well. Why does he do that? Because if you want to meet girls, single people, go where the girls are. Makes sense. And in the ancient Near East, you're going to find the ladies at the local well. They're drawing water for their families. They're socializing. They're catching up with one another. Uh, And so, so that's smart of the servant to do this. He's trusting God, but he's also using his God given brain. Go where the girls are. Duh. What's more, He goes in the evening. Why is that? Verse 11, because that was the time the women went to draw water. It was was cooler then. So so that's when you want to go and do the labor of of getting all of this this water. As an aside, it reminds me of John chapter 4 and the Samaritan outcast woman at the well. When, When did she go to the well? 
It was at the heat of the day. It was at noon. Why was that? Because she was an outcast. She did not want any eyes gazing upon her, talking about her and gossiping about her. But here, uh, the servant goes in the evening time. This is when all the, all the ladies show up. <clears throat> and so, essentially what he is doing, the servant is placing himself in the path of God's providence. He's living in conformity with the Word that God has already revealed and trusting the Lord to sovereignly work out the details regarding the things that He has not yet revealed. So we have a great commission, and we have a great journey, and then this leads us to a great prayer, a great prayer. While the Word of God is to be at the foundation of all of our decision-making and the guidance that we seek, prayer also needs to be in the mix. Um, the book of James says that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And Abraham's servant needs help. He needs some wisdom. He, he's gone to the right town. He's gone to the well. That's a smart move. But, but now what? And he says in verse 12, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Now, that's probably the most important part of the prayer. He prays that God would show steadfast love to Abraham. That, that word steadfast love, that's the word hesed. It has to do with God's covenant faithfulness. God has made covenant promises to Abraham, and he knows that the promises include promises of offspring, promises of numerous descendants. For that to happen, we've got to find a wife for Isaac, so I need some help here, Lord. The servant is praying God's promises back to God, in essence. He's bringing up the notion of God's covenant faithfulness to do what he says that he will do. He's praying according to God's will. Again, he knows the, the generalities of God's will already. He knows that because he and Abraham ha, have traced the trajectory of God's past revelation. Now, of course, there are times where we aren't sure if we're praying for God's will, which is why we should always humbly say in our prayers, if this be your will. But sometimes, sometimes we do know what God's will is, and when we do, we have got to get about the business of praying. Because the Apostle John says this, very encouraging word, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. That's an amazing promise. But there is a condition to the promise that you pray <laughs> and that you pray according to his will. Some of us have, have weak and powerless prayer lives First, because we aren't praying at all. The uh, book of James says you have not because you ask not. But other times our prayer lives are, are powerless because we aren't praying according to God's will. Our, our prayers often are, Lord, my will be done. But of course, Jesus taught us that at the heart of our prayers should be the attitude, Lord, thy will be done. That's exactly what the servant is doing uh, when he is banking everything on God's covenant loyalty, his covenant love to Abraham. He's saying, in essence, God, you have already given a word to Abraham. You have already made covenant promises with him. So, God, I'm asking you now, according to your revealed will, on the basis of those promises you made to Abraham, please give me success. Now, as prayer continues in verse 13, I'm standing by the spring of water, and, and, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, uh, let her be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you've shown steadfast love to my master. 
Kent Hughes notes that what is most remarkable is that in keeping with the passage's emphasis on providence, the servant did not ask for a miraculous sign from God. Rather, he sought guidance in the regular way through the ordinary events of life. I agree with that. I don't think what's going on here is some hyper-mystical, weird thing that sometimes Christians do in seeking God's will. Uh, Because what specifically is the servant praying for here? Uh, What is he looking for, in essence, in a bride for Isaac? It's not harder to discern when you think about it. He's praying that he will encounter a woman who is extremely kind and hospitable. Uh, Really, this, this test here is a test of character. He's praying that God would bring a good, moral woman across his path for Isaac. Nothing wrong with praying for that. You should pray for that. And that this woman's uh, morality would be, and her character would be demonstrated not through her merely responding to his request for a drink, because anyone would have said, sure, you can have a drink. That's not a big deal. That, that would be normal, everyday courtesy. A, a, a jerk probably would do that. Sure, have a little bit of water. What's it to me? Instead, the servant is praying for someone who has exemplary kindness and hospitality. And remember, we've talked about this before in our series on on Abraham. In the ancient Near East, hospitality was huge. Uh, Hospitality wasn't just something you did. It it said something about who you were. And, And it was considered a revelation of someone's moral virtue and character. And so for this woman to to just give the servant a sip, that would not be impressive. Again, anybody would do that. But for her to turn around and say, let me water your camels, that's going the extra mile. Well, we get to verse 15, and we see amazingly in God's providence at just the right time, what what a coincidence. I heard someone once say, it's amazing. The more I pray, the more coincidences seem to happen. At just the right time. Before he finishes praying, Rebecca shows up. So the servant runs up to her. It's a little humorous here. I'm wondering if he's a little too eager. Uh, what, what, what would Rebecca think, seeing this strange man all of a sudden just kind of running up to her? Uh, but anyway, he asked her for a drink, and, and lo and behold, Rebecca gives him a drink. That's no big deal. But then she offers to water his camels. Dale Davis points out that this is a real revelation of her character. We know that a camel drinks something like 25 gallons of water to replenish the amount of weight it has lost. It takes 10 minutes for it to drink this amount. A normal water jar at the time would have about three gallons in it. Do the math here. A three-gallon jar, 10 camels at 25 gallons apiece. That, that, that girl is flitting back and forth from well to trough some 80 to 100 times. This is a woman who is not allergic to work. That's a good character trait, right? In this one moment, we see multiple qualities that God prizes in a wife. A woman who is friendly, who is hospitable, who is humble, who is hardworking. And she must have been kind of buff, too, to be doing all that. Because, because this, this, this probably would have taken about an hour and a half to two hours. It's a good workout. And on top of that, she must have been really patient too, because as she's doing this, what's the servant doing? Verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He is sitting there for like two hours watching this woman. It makes me wonder if Rebecca was smiling on the outside 
But inside, she's thinking, what's up with this guy? He's just standing there, and he's not lifting a finger to help me. But she doesn't grumble. She doesn't complain. I think she does this with the right spirit, the right attitude. In verse 22, he gives her a gold ring and a bracelet, and you might think he'd just get on his knee and propose for Isaac right there. Hey, she's the one? I prayed this? This happened? Surely this is it, right? But here's where I think we have much to learn from Abraham's servants. So often, Christians may have an experience and will interpret reality and determine what is true solely on the basis of their experience. And if the servant was like many Christians, his experience at the well would have been all he needed to determine, you know what, it doesn't matter what else, what else happens, this is awesome, can't believe this, this is the one, she's the one, she's going back to Isaac, I'm taking her. But this servant's experience as powerful and as wonderful as it may have been for him, is not the final criteria he uses to determine his next steps. So important. So important. Uh, There's something more important to this servant than his personal experiences, and that is the trajectory of God's Word. No matter how awesome that experience at the well may have been, you know, he's sitting down thinking, the first woman did what I was praying about. Cool. But, 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 Nevertheless, none of that matters if this woman is not from Abraham's family. And therefore, as encouraged as he surely was by this well experience, that's not the end-all be-all. Now comes the all-crucial question, because if if the, the answer to this question comes out wrong, then that experience doesn't matter, and he needs to move on to another girl. Verse 23, he said, please, tell me whose daughter you are. And then she said, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Nahor is Abraham's brother. And lo and behold, we've hit pay dirt. Bullseye. First time. And so we have here a great success. A great success. Verse 26, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Ligon Duncan points out that this servant's response is a real witness to all of us, especially to us men, because we have frail egos. And some of us automatically would not respond like this servant. We, we, we men who are wanting to impress our wives, we find a parking space, the only parking space in the parking lot, and we're like, yeah, am I good or what? Like we had something to do with that. And we have a tendency to do something that's not really to our credit, and we begin to praise ourselves. It's not how the servant is. He travels 450, 500 miles For weeks, he goes to the right place, at the right time, to the right well, he prays the right prayer, gets the right girl, and he still praises God for it. There's no chest thumping here. There's no patting himself on the back, I'm awesome. There's no taking credit for what God has done as as though he, the servant, has accomplished this thing. As wise as he was, as shrewd as he was, he gives all the praise and credit to God because he totally acknowledges God's sovereign providence, which is an important lesson for us in the school of faith, namely that we as God's people must see God's hand in everything, even in the tiny, minute details 
of life. That's what the providence of God is all about. And what we're, what we're seeing here also is that we don't need to have visions or miraculous nature-bending miracles or audible voices to know that God is at work. Uh, part of the life of faith means framing your decisions, your choices, according to the Word of God, tracing out the trajectories of His Word, and then moving forward by faith, prayerfully putting yourself in the path of God's providence, all the while trusting that God is big enough and faithful enough to guide your steps. And isn't that the heart of what uh, we're told in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 5, that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. So, story goes on, servant meets with Laban. Uh, that's Rebecca's brother. It seems like Laban has some charge over Rebecca, uh, perhaps because Rebecca's father is incapacitated. Uh, he, he, he's ill. Maybe he's dying, and Laban's taking over the family. And the servant recounts everything that has happened. This is one of the reasons why this chapter is so long, because the servant goes off and he repeats everything that was just said. And, and a part of me is like, why, Moses? Why, why, are, you doing, why are you making this chapter so long? But I, I, that, that's not random. Uh, the things that the Bible writers focus on and the things that the Bible writers repeat are there for a reason. It's, it, it's, it's a clue as to what are the most important parts of this story. What is God trying to say to us through this passage? And it has everything to say about the miraculous provision and providence of God. So, the servant tells the story of what happens. Verse 50, Laban says, this thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. That's a Hebrew idiom. It's a way of saying, it doesn't matter what we think. What we want is of no concern. This is, this is settled. God's spoken. Laban sees the hand of God in all of this, working providentially uh, through the situation, through ordinary circumstances. He sees the hand of God in this, but because of what I know from Laban, from later, uh, what I know of Laban uh, from later on in Genesis, I think Laban not only sees the hand of God in this, but I also think he sees the glint of gold. He saw the jewelry that Rebekah brought home. Uh, in fact, you may have noticed earlier in the story, it's, it's like as soon as he hears about the jewelry and he kind of brightens up, he's like, oh, come in, come in, blessed of the Lord. Uh, in verse 35, the servant talked about all the vast material wealth that God has blessed Abraham with. I, I wonder if, um, if the, the servant was also just a good judge of character and maybe knew that that would get uh, uh, Laban's uh, attention. You know, he's talking about my, my, my master Abraham uh, from, from this land far away. He, he, he's, a very, he's my rich master, by the way. Did I happen to tell you that? He's very, very rich. He puts an emphasis on that. Um, I think Laban probably has dollar signs in his eyes. Again, I'm drawing this from what we know about Laban later on in the book of Genesis. Uh, Laban agrees to the marriage. The servant gives more costly gifts to the family. I think Laban likes that. And when the next morning comes, he asks to take his leave of them, and Laban asked him to stay another 10 days. Now, again, if you know Laban's whole story, you know 10 days doesn't necessarily mean 10 days. A short visit may be a very extended stay. Read the story of Jacob later on, and you'll know what I'm talking about. You don't want to hang out with Laban too long, or you'll get hornswoggled. The servant presses to leave. Verse 56, don't delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. In other words, don't defy the providence of God. We, we've got to get going. Laban tries one more thing to get them to stay. He says in verse 57, let's call Rebecca and ask her. 
And I presume he's thinking that maybe uh, Rebecca will want to stick around as long as possible but before going off on this big, long journey, 500 miles from home, to marry a man she's never laid eyes on, leaving friends and family and the security of home behind. That's a big, scary thing. And so they call her out, and they say, well, will you go with this man? And Rebecca comes out with packed suitcases. You betcha. She's ready to go. She apparently is done with her extended stay with Laban also. And so, she travels to Canaan. And if you go down to verse 63, we get to that wonderful meeting between Isaac and Rebecca. And they must have had a lot of fun at parties when people said, well, so how did you guys meet? It says, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. In other words, he's praying. And meditation in particular is, is not just like random praying, but praying, on God's, praying about God's Word, thinking about God's Word. Isaac is a man of prayer. And you can bet his regular prayers included petitions to God about the fulfillment of his promises. He knew the trajectories of God's Word, and surely uh, he would be praying in accordance with that Word and with those promises, which would include the provision of a wife. And for all we know, he, he's in that moment saying, Lord, Lord, I, I, I'm, I'm getting older here, and, and for you to fulfill your promises, I need a wife. And then he looks up in the providence of God. Uh, it says in verse 66, these, these camels now are coming. And, 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 and the servant comes and he tells Isaac all that he had done. I'm sure the servant did. <laughs> he's, he's very verbose. I'm glad Moses didn't record that or the, the chapter would be three times as long. He tells him everything that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, what is surprising about this text is that after all of this emphasis on the importance of Isaac getting a wife, there is zero time spent on the wedding. <laughs> Don't you want to know about the wedding? That would be pretty cool. I'm sure it was big. It was opulent. It was fancy. Abraham was a man of means, after all. We don't have anything on that. There's no time spent on the wedding. What does Moses spend the most time on? Again, he spends the most time on God's faithfulness and providentially orchestrating the details of life, even the ordinary, everyday details of life. As one commentator says, there are no miracles in this story as we usually think of miracles, no rearrangement of molecules, no sun standing still, no healing, no sea parting. Rather, God provides Isaac a bride through the normal events of life, the delays, the customs, the stresses, the chance meetings. As J.I. Packer says, Believers are never in the grip of blind forces, fortune, chance, luck, fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice. That's a great perspective to have, especially tomorrow morning when you are stuck in traffic and there's 500 cars in front of you and you can't get to where you need to go. Well, God's in everything except for that, right? God's in everything, always working. And that's the whole point of Genesis 24. He's always working, and He's always faithful. He never stops working in your life and in my life because He's always faithful to His people. But as we bring this sermon for a landing, there's a, there's a bigger picture here that we need to see. Yes, the story is certainly meant to encourage the people of God to trust in His providential care and guidance for us as, as we walk by faith, but in the specific story of the bringing together of Isaac and Rebekah 
God is not just wonderfully working to provide for them. He actually, in this chapter, was working to provide for you. And that becomes clear in verse 59, and I think that's a key verse in this chapter. As Rebecca is getting on that camel, look at what the family is saying to her. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. Now, that's a fascinating blessing, and it's not random. That kind of language should sound very familiar to you because that blessing is an echo of the promises that God has made to Abraham. And what did God promise Abraham? That he would have numerous offspring, and that one day one offspring would come and have victory over his enemies. Uh, That's the Abrahamic promise. And it reminds us that Genesis 24 is more than just a, a Disney romance story. It's more than the casual stories that you and I might swap about how we and our spouses met. The stakes here in Genesis 24 are much higher. Yes, God in Genesis 24 is weaving a love story together, and yes, He is preparing a bride for the Son of Promise, but Genesis 24 is not ultimately about Rebekah and Isaac. Instead, in faithfully bringing together Isaac and Rebekah, God the Father is thinking ultimately about His faithfulness in providing a bride for His own Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of Promise, the offspring of Abraham, the descendant of Isaac, the seed of Rebekah. And all of the things that are happening in Genesis 24, and all of the things that are happening in every single page in the Old Testament is a story of God the Father, through His sovereign providence, orchestrating every single detail in history to make sure that a bride is prepared for His Son, so that in the fullness of time, at just the right moment, Jesus is born, and Jesus comes into the world as a groom seeking His bride. While the servant of Abraham traveled 500 miles to secure a bride, Jesus bridged the gap between heaven and earth. He came much further. And while Rebekah was offered gifts of silver and gold, Jesus came offering up His very life to us. Why? Because unlike Rebekah, we were not a beautiful bride. We were dirty and polluted and stained by our own sin against God. Indeed, we deserved to die for our sin. But Jesus loved us so much that He died in our place so that through our faith in His sacrifice, we could be set free from the penalty and power of sin. What's more, Scripture tells us that He brings us, His bride, the church, into His Father's household, and He washes us, and He makes us pure and clean and beautiful as if we had never sinned. And we will be with Him forever, enjoying His love and fellowship for eternity in the Father's house. If you're here this morning as an unbeliever, know that if you would but place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you too will find yourself swept away in this beautiful love story. If you're here as a Christian, I hope you'll from now on see Genesis 24 in a, in a, in a new additional light, that the love that Isaac had for his bride is really subservient to the bigger and better love story and is a reminder of God's great steadfast covenant love for you. Uh, to us who are collectively His bride, he has, he has redeemed us with His own blood, and therefore nothing can separate us from the love of our heavenly groom. Let's pray.